Hello and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's episode is a very special episode with my spouse, Megan Osborne. Megan Osborne is an artist, an author, and an activist for mental health issues. She founded Mindful Liberation Project, co-founded Something Something Press, and founded FOIA for Change. These episodes run a little long, so we've broken them up into four parts. This is part one. Enjoy. get involved in uh in uh radical mental health when i started realizing that i had mental health issues when i was a teenager i um started researching about them and questioning the research that i found questioning societal norms around mental illness and mental health and i was basically a part of radical mental health and i didn't know that's what it's called um, I actually didn't know that's what it was called until a couple years ago. And um, you formed Mindful Liberation Project, or you were one of the founding members. Uh, where did where did that idea come from to form that group? Um, well, it came from a lot of things. It came from me growing up in a environment where mental health and mental illness was taboo to talk about and really talking about anything personal or emotional that you're experiencing was not acceptable. And for the longest time, I wanted to figure out how to create a a, uh, safe environment for people to just come and talk about these things without fear of being ostracized. And I didn't know how. Um, I read something when I was pretty young, I think around the age of 16, I read something by the Icarus Project and, uh, Will Hall and the Freedom, I think it was Freedom Project, um, about how to create radical mental health groups or support groups in your community. And there are a lot of good ideas in there and... With my experience and with that and some other research that I did, I brought the idea of some sort of support group and radical mental health group to people in Richmond, and that's how that started. And to you, um, what is the difference that between like radical mental health and like the normal, you know? Uh, typical mental health um, industry, I guess? Well, the mental health or psychiatric industry um, is based off of comparing everyone to this norm. Um, This normal person that has no mental health concerns or deals with stress in a, quote, normal way that they are not bogged down by it, they're not overwhelmed by it, they can get over it in a in a reasonable amount of time, and their lives are generally normal. For the definition of the word normal, the statistical norm, 
Um, so, so the idea is to get them back to normalcy. Yeah. Okay. Um, the problem with that is that it doesn't take into account people's actual experiences. Many people cannot fit into that norm. It's not possible for them. And while that would be seen as bad or abnormal by psychiatrists or psychologists, that might be that person's norm. So radical mental health embraces the idea that we all have our own norm. We all have our own baseline. And we experience the world and navigate through it based off of that and not based off of someone else defining how we should be. So it's, it, it's kind of a self-defined goal, maybe, in radical mental health, of where the person wants to get themselves to? Um, kind of, but not really. Some people view radical mental health that way. Some others, a lot of others, actually embrace what they can term as flaws or difficulties, uh, differing abilities, mental illnesses, whatever they identify with, they embrace them. They understand that this, this is what I have to deal with. This is something that's going to be with me. I don't think that it's healthy to have the goal to fix something that is inherent about me that won't necessarily go away. So more coping with it rather than trying to eradicate it. So it seems kind of like an open definition People seem to have like d- different uh, interpretations of the term. Yeah, um, I've heard a lot of questions from people in working with you about our, if you're against the traditional modes of mental health, uh, like um, let's say psychiatric drugs or uh, going to like a formal therapy or a formal psychologist or something like that. How how do you see? Um, Radical mental health, how does that work with those kinds of things? Well, every time I hear someone say that, I kind of want to laugh um, because it just shows that they really don't understand what radical mental health is all about. So obviously, instead of laughing, I try to educate them in that radical mental health is about questioning the norm and the system that oftentimes oppresses psychiatric patients and harms them more than helps them. However, there are a lot of people that are helped by it. And radical mental health is about personal choice and being aware of all the options that are available, being educated about the options, the side effects of drugs, what might happen if you don't take drugs, just basically personal agency. So radical mental health encompasses everything, including the normative um, mental health system, in that if you want to take psychiatric medication or see a therapist, go ahead. That's fine. As long as you are able to understand all of the options and also be aware of the oppressive nature that is often the defining 
characteristic of the psychiatric system. So what is your goal ultimately with, um, with running things like MLP? Ultimately, Mindful Liberation Project, it's supposed to be part of a movement of disseminating information, educating people, spreading awareness, and acting on the information that we gain. Okay. Um, and talking about uh, spreading information, um, a while ago, we both, uh, or you came up with the idea, you wanted to start a press, and um, and so we both kind of, I helped put it a little bit together, and but it, it, it's really mainly your thing. Um, you started Something Something Press, and uh, you sell some um, some zines and uh, radical mental health literature. How necessary do you think that kind of stuff is right now for people to have? I think it's completely necessary. I think there should be a lot more of it, and not just a few select presses or distros across the country doing it, but I think that it should be everywhere. I think that it should be in Barnes & Noble. I think that it should be on Amazon.com. I think that it should be everywhere because we're often fed the idea of normality in mental health through those that are part of that system. So psychiatrists, researchers, academics, which is fine, we do need that information. But they're not talking about alternatives because it would lose them money. So you think to a certain extent they're actually kind of self-serving themselves? Well, yeah. And I think that a lot of radical mental health activists are in a prime position to be able to talk about all the options because they don't make money off of it. Mm. So, for instance, if there was a radical mental health group that their job was to spread radical mental health information and they got paid from it, got grants and various other things, that's all they would do. They probably wouldn't spread information about therapy and psychiatric drugs unless they're talking about how you shouldn't use them. Um, but yeah, when, when there's money involved and your job and your livelihood is all wrapped up in something, you tend to perpetuate that. And that concludes part one of our interview with Megan Osborne. Part two will follow. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on March 16th, 2014. of our interview with Megan Osborne. So a few years ago, um, you and a couple other folks went up uh, to protest the APA, which is the American 
psychological association, psychiatric, psychiatric association. Um, and I guess they were what, reviewing the DSM, what would be the DSM five, which is the diagnostic and statistics manual of some thing <laughs> that they, they basically judge people as deviations from normalcy with this manual. And they were doing a review. Is that correct? Yes. Um, where, what do you think about things like the DSM? Um, it's helpful for practitioners and researchers to be able to define things in clusters of symptoms. For instance, no two people with PTSD are alike. They don't have the same symptoms. They're, they're never going to. So to be able to say this cluster of symptoms is PTSD, it creates a standard where you can research it, you can talk about it with other practitioners, and you can um, teach psychology students about it. But if they were to just focus on symptoms, it would be a lot more difficult and a lot more confusing, and possibly their research would not even be valid because they wouldn't be able to compare one person with another person. So in that way, the DSM is helpful for practitioners and researchers. However, I also think that it's problematic because each person's mental health is so different that picking and choosing a couple symptoms to fit into this diagnostic category seems problematic to me. The, the one thing that's always struck me about it was that in typical science, you have control. You have a control group. And with psychi psychology or psychiatry, um, I don't think we're at the point where we actually understand human behavior enough to the point where we can show what a control group of the human mind really would be or really what is normal because of the effects of sociology and um, external uh instances occurring to shape a person a certain way and depending on their own culture and, and these kind of things, the ideas of normative behavior completely relative to those groups. Um, how do you feel about that statement? I mean, do you feel like psychiatry or, or, or psychology is a real science or is it, is it more like a, like a helping kind of emerging field um both the the issue with psychology and psychiatry as a science is that it's a lot of guesswork and each psychiatric patient is basically treated like a guinea pig because they don't know exactly what the psychiatric medications do what parts of the brain they work on what chemical processes are involved and they have a general idea from clinical studies and trials, if a certain drug works on depression more than a placebo, but they don't really know which specific antidepressant is going to help this depressed patient. So they can try a whole slew of drugs. That, that's something I've <laughs> noticed is that, you know, you give a person uh, antidepressant, if they go in for an antidepressant, they might have to go through three or four to find one that works for them. I mean, it seems to me like they don't really they kind of know what it's doing, but they don't really maybe know the variables that can occur in a person 
that would make X drug work for them versus Y drug. It, it, it seems more like kind of like you said, a little bit of guesswork in finding that, um, which is a little bit scary because I mean, if I went into like have an operation done, I really wouldn't want <laughs> an operation that had fifteen different variables that didn't really understand that it might kill me or might work for me, you know. And you see that with with um, antidepressants because they all have a suicide risk, right? Mm-hmm. Generally. So, I mean, it, it, it almost is kind of maybe like going in for an operation and, I mean, risking that kind of fatal outcome. Yeah, I mean, basically, they're treating the symptoms. And what I find extremely problematic about psychiatry specifically is that you could be depressed or anxious for so many different reasons, and they could be completely health-related. Like, if you have sleep apnea, you could be depressed, you could be anxious, angry, irritable, mood swings, so many different things. And if you go to a psychiatrist, they will want to give you medication for that. They wouldn't even mention or think about sleep apnea. Whereas if you got treatment for the sleep apnea, all of that may be really diminished or completely gone. But their modus operandi is to treat the symptom and, in my opinion, not even really address the underlying cause. So you have a degree in psychology? Yes. From George Mason? Yeah. And that's a bachelor's, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you... <laughs> How do you feel being involved in radical mental health, but also having gone through, like, the more uh, um, formal uh, education to get that? Did you feel kind of at odds with that? or? Oh, yeah, I did every day. Um, because, like I said earlier, radical mental health was a part of my life before I even knew what it was. And... The college degree came well after that. Um, And I wanted to get the college degree because I felt like for me to be an informed citizen and later activist, that I needed to learn everything that there was to know about the, the system that I wanted to work against. So... The entire time I kind of felt like an infiltrator. Um, even in the papers that I did, I was in the... I did a uh, psychology honors program research project, and the entire time my professors were telling me that I need to tone it down, that I was being... Basically, they were saying I was being too radical for the field of psychology, and that... While that's a bit okay for an undergraduate, if I ever wanted to move further along in my education, that it wouldn't be acceptable. And this this is an issue that you have a lot of passion for because personally, you have had to deal with mental health issues, and um, so it's not just like you're going in there like I'm interested in psychology. I mean, this is something that you're actually coming to from a point of um, uh, having a real 
personal need to try and help people, help people maybe that were like yourself a little bit. Yeah. Was was that hard having it be so personal? Um, not most of the time because I kind of felt like an information sponge. And for the longest time, I was just focused on learning. And I didn't really think too much about how it applied to myself or people like me. I was just learning, learning, learning. Um, But then after I got to a point where the only thing left that I was learning were like nuances or obscure theories or just new research that was going on about old theories, that's when I started to feel put off or uneasy um, because I started realizing and understanding that most people in academia and the fields of psychology and psychiatry are coming from a perspective of, I learned this from a textbook. So it's more like purely academic. Yeah. And for probably a year or so, I was really disillusioned and kind of frightened at the idea that I would be somebody who had real lived experiences and no one else around me did. Like, they could quote textbook definitions, but they couldn't give real life examples or they couldn't, they didn't know how to apply it to real life, really. Like they would have to go do internships to try to learn how to apply it to real life where I could apply these things to real life by the age of 14. And it was just really odd to me like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain how strange it was to me. And that concludes part two of our interview with Megan Osborne. Part three is next. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on March 16th, 2014. This is part three of our interview with Megan Osborne. Enjoy. One of the focuses in your work seems to be in trying to listen to people and have people kind of tell their story and their experience. And you make a great effort in most of the projects you do, all the projects that you do, to try and um, give that space and respect to people's personal narratives where uh, that kind of seems to be the exact opposite of what the kind of running modal mentality of professional psychiatry and psychology tends to do in the way that's implemented. I know it tries to do those or it hopes to do those things or it says idealistically it wants to listen to people's you know, points of view. But um, 
how am is that because you felt that people weren't listening to your own when when you were uh, engaging these formal mechanisms as a as a client? Um, not really. It was more like I understood that it was their job to get as many patients as possible, so they had a limited amount of time to talk to me. Mm-hmm. So their goal is to get as much information as they can in a shortened period of time in order for them to do their job effectively. So they would ask questions, I would give answers, and then they would make a diagnosis, and that's what they would do. Their job wasn't to sit there and actually give you space to share your experience. And again, this comes back to it's their career and livelihood, and they have to abide by laws and um, customs and norms and all these things just to be able in order to keep their licenses, continue practicing, and further themselves in their careers. And in radical mental health groups, that that's just not present. You can spend all day listening to someone share their experience if you want to, and you don't have to answer to anybody. That brings up a good thing. The uh, One of the things you helped start here with MLP, and then it kind of spun off into his own thing, was Richmond's peer support. Um, can you talk about that for a minute? Like, what... what Explain explain peer support to me if, if I as if I didn't know what it is. Peer support is basically this is how I try to explain it to people. Um, if you were to get with a group of your friends and talk about how you've been doing, and not like, well, at work the other day I had an issue with my boss or something, but like really talk about what's going on with you, your struggles, your hopes your mental health concerns, if you have any, um, basically sharing your experiences, learning that there are other people that have shared similar experiences to you, and learning from each other how to work through your experiences. And you've not only been a facilitator of it, but as a facilitator in one of these models it, you also share. So how, what is it what has it done for you personally in sharing? Um, well, the first time that we ever had a peer support group in 2011, I remember just talking about how I had been, things that had been bothering me and the moment that the other people recognized and expressed that they really understood where I was coming from, I just started crying. Because I'd never had that before. So it was a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Um, I know with your work, that's, that's that being able to kind of be open about these things is really important to you. And um, sometimes you phrase it as kind of destigmatizing mental illness as a goal. Um, 
do you do you think talking like that works towards destigmatizing mental illness? I think that it does, but it really depends on who you're talking to. Um, I, well, who you're talking to and who's the, the mix of the group. Like, I really don't think that peer support would work if you have people from two really disparate groups trying to talk to each other. Um, it might make them feel more alienated. Do you think because of like a cultural difference or? Yeah. So in, in that way, if you have people from very different backgrounds, I think that it would actually work to, towards more stigmatization because you feel more alienated when you don't understand where the person's coming from and that's where stigma comes from. But peer support, as I've experienced it, it does lead towards destigmatization because it seems like people are coming more from the same or similar cultures into peer support and not just from anywhere. And and how does that contribute to the lessening of the stigmatization? Um, because... Our society tells us that we're only supposed to talk about our feelings with professionals. And so automatically right there, it's taboo to talk about our feelings with family members, friends, coworkers, anything like that. So just the act of saying what you would to a therapist instead to a friend or someone you met through peer support or something like that is destigmatizing it. It's questioning the taboo. It's a radical act. So when you went to uh, uh, protest the DSM um, re- uh, revision or um, talk at, at, at the uh, APA, well, why did you go? I went for a number of reasons. The main reason I went is because I wanted to meet other people in the radical mental health community. So I wanted to network. Another reason I wanted to go was not necessarily to protest it, but to raise awareness that there are other options, that it's not just mental health equals the DSM and the DSM equals mental health, that we don't have to be necessarily defined by that in our everyday lives if we don't want to be. And I also went to feel a sense of community, because the way that it stands, radical mental health activists are really spread out. And I know a lot of people, but very few of them live locally. So sometimes even if you don't fully agree with what's going on, like, I'm not really interested in protesting the DSM. I mean, it has its uses for practitioners. Um, but you know that that's going to be an event where hundreds of people like yourself are going to be congregating and having talks and presentations and demonstrations, and it's it's pretty rare, and I wanted to be involved in that. So it sounds like the radical mental health community, it's, it's, it's pretty spread out, it's pretty... Sporadic. 
Yeah. And that concludes part three of our interview with Megan Osborne. Part four is next. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on March 16th, 2014. This is part four of our four-part interview with Megan Osborne. Enjoy. Um, one of your things I know a, a big uh, a big interest of yours is the focus of um, mental health in. The and how that works with the criminal justice system, or how the criminal justice system um, treats people with mental health issues. Was it a thesis you had done on it, or on that subject, or is that? Yeah, um, it was it was a um, psychology honors thesis, and I approached it more like a theoretical work which is not what my professors wanted me to do. So I created a uh, paper that was largely theory backed up by statistics and research in the field. If you could give me like the nutshell version of what your thesis was. Basically, it was a majority of jail and prison inmates have symptoms of some sort of mental distress. And I was trying to find out why. Um, What's your theory? Well, my theory then was that people with mental health concerns react differently to punishment. And because the criminal justice system is based off of just punishing people, that will inherently affect people with mental health concerns more. Um, that was seven years ago that I wrote that, and since then I've come up with many more reasons. Um, one reason is that police officers don't know how to deal with people with mental health concerns, especially when it comes to the homeless or houseless population and them getting calls about someone being a disturbance of the peace or trespassing where they shouldn't be and they show up and the person doesn't make sense to them or they seem like they're acting extreme. And it generally starts there with police officers being ill-informed about how to handle people with mental health concerns. And while... A lot of police officers are ill-informed. There are also some that realize, hey, this person may have a mental health issue. I'm going to try to help them by booking them into jail tonight so that they can get quicker treatment. But that's not how it works. 
once people are caught up in the criminal justice system, it's really difficult to get out. And you stay in that cycle. You, you said that there was multiple reasons or multiple new things you had learned about the thesis? The starting point of police, they're not trained well. Okay. Um, and even when they are able to identify these things, they think that they're doing a good deed by booking people into the system when they're not. And from there, once people are involved in the criminal justice system, they get into jails or they get into prisons, and they're not giving given the treatment that they want and need. Um, psychiatric medication, if they are prescribed it, is often given sporadically or not given at all. Um, being able to see therapists is sporadic. Um, sometimes jail and prison officials think that you're malingering um, or faking your symptoms when you want to see a therapist or a psychiatrist when you actually really need help. So they don't allow you to get the help because they think that you're malingering. There aren't good programs within these institutions to help people work through their mental health concerns while they're in there. And then they're expected to just be normal, productive human beings when they're released while they were in jail or prison for months to years. And they could have deteriorated while they were imprisoned. Also, there are people that go into jail and prison with no mental health concerns whatsoever and come out with them because of the process and the dehumanization that is within the walls of these places. So basically jails and prisons for the incarcerated people, I would say their mental illness perpetuators and producers. It's kind of like if you wanted to, in a conspiracy theory sort of way, think of they're sort of the prime setup for perpetuating the system of psychiatry. By not giving these inmates the help with their mental health concerns that they need when they're released, they're released at a worse point in their in their position with their mental health. So in that way prisons and jails perpetuate them theoretically needing psychiatric care. So in that way you could think of prisons and jails producing mental health patients. You're talking about uh some of the stuff with police and how they handle people. Um, a while back, uh, we were both involved in um, trying to do some advocacy for uh, that uh, gentleman, Kelly Thomas, in California that was um, killed. And then there was one here in Henrico, I think, Alan Skeens, that was shot by the police. Um, do you think the police can be trained to respond to these uh, folks with mental issues better? 
or, or do you think we'll still see these instances even with more training? Um, I, I honestly don't think that the police as a profession, um, go in having the skills of being able to navigate and de-escalate a situation and talk to someone that has mental health concerns. They're trained to efficiently deal with lawbreakers, not have a conversation with someone. I, I think people that are able to de-escalate situations are inherently different from people that become police officers in general. I'm not saying that all police officers can't do it. Maybe just the, the type of personality or something like that. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of a futile endeavor to think that police officers can do everything. I think that they should ideally be able to identify this doesn't seem right and this is out of my league. That it seems like a mental issue. Yeah. So then I'm going to call, say, a crisis intervention team. Mm-hmm. Not this person seems mentally ill. I'm going to escalate the situation because I don't know what else to do. So what do you see as like, what would, if if all the things you're working for come to fruition, what is your ideal world look like in terms of how society interacts with people with mental issues and how those people maybe see themselves. That's a very large question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, what, is it, what does it look like? Like, if, if you spend a day with someone in society, how are they feeling? How are they talking to people? Um, well, here's a very simple example. The the gesture of saying, how are you, would not just be a replacement for hi. It would mean, how are you? Like, I think that one of the things that a lot of radical mental health people focus on is saying what we mean. So... I I experiment with this sometimes when people ask me, how are you, and I tell them, and they don't know what to do. They're really confused. Well, you're breaking a social norm. Yeah. Um, but that's just one small example. Um, getting the help you need and want. If you want therapy, you can get it. If you want medication, you can get it. If you want peer support, you would be able to get it on a wider scale say there are there are therapists, there are psychiatrists, there are peer support people that you can go to. So um, a mix of professional and kind of activist or volunteer or non-professional people. Yeah. And there are a range of options for people of differing incomes. Um, no one's turned away from anything. There are people available that you can talk to candidly about how you're doing and how they're doing without fearing that they're going to delegitimize 
what you're experiencing or not want to listen to you or various other things. Just basically a more accepting environment. Would mental institutions still exist? I think they would. Um, because unfortunately there will always be some sort of system of control and there will always be people especially practitioners and family members of people with mental health concerns that think that they know better for that person and make decisions for that person and force them to do certain things so regardless I think that there will always be uh, psychiatric institutions um but in an ideal world, there would be psychiatric institutions and people would not be forced to go to them. They could choose to go to them for help and assistance. And that concludes part four of our four-part interview with Megan Osborne. I hope you had a great time listening to it. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded March 16th, 2014. Thank you for listening.